Good luck, Pat, William called. Good luck, Billy, Pat called behind him in reply. Sam was running ahead of him. Sam, wait up! The boys ran in the direction of the foot race being staged for boys in two categories, ages 7 through 10 and 11 through 13. Max and Liz followed after the boys, and a shadowy figure hiding behind a tree followed after them as well. Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. By the way, as you listen to this episode from the audiobook The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, keep in mind you can download your very own copy of it by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you'll find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, epicorderoftheseven.com. On today's episode, we'll bring you Chapter 7 from the audiobook The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, And we'll get to know the final member of the Epic Order of the Seven, as Jenny will give you a proper introduction to her in Jenny's Corner. I'll give you a few hints. She's one of the characters in today's chapter who may be a lamb, but she is never sheepish. And while she may be a lamb, most of the time, she isn't. Eh, you'll probably figure it out. Meanwhile, there's a lot going on in the studio today, so we better get to it. With your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. Well, merci, monsieur announcer, but I am afraid it is just myself and Nigel at the moment. Uh Uh-oh, is Max late again? Quite the contrary, old boy. Seems our Scottish cohort has gone a bit, uh... Mad. He has gone mad. Wait, mad, Max? No, that is something different, monsieur. Oh. Uh, Well, my pet, uh, mad may be overstepping it a bit. In fact... Spoken in the vernacular sense, the term mad might be indeed quite the opposite of what I've observed. Aye, that'll be great. And we'll put the traditional Scottish food over there, and uh, the the dancing will be over in the far back corner, and uh, then that'll leave room for the foot races. Uh, Foot races? Uh, In the studio? Max, what on earth are you? It be St. Andrew's Day, and we be celebrating in style. But Max... We have an episode to do. Oh, way ahead of you, lass. I sent Wee Mousie over to his shoebox. Uh, newsroom? Uh, right. Uh, I sent Wee Mousie to his Wee Newsroom for another edition of Nigel's News Nuggets. Greetings. I'm Nigel P. Monaco, reporting from the newsroom. And by special request from a certain canine with a thick Scottish brogue, <laughs> he be talking about me. Ooh, what gave it away? Today's news nuggets will focus on St. Andrew's Day, which, as we learned in our last episode, honors the patron saint of Scotland, the disciple of Jesus named Andrew. And whilst St. Andrew's Day has been celebrated in Scotland for centuries, it was only officially made into a public holiday recently, in 2006. Beginning on November 30th, which is said to be the day that St. Andrew was crucified in 60 AD, it is now a three-day annual event known as the Feast of St. Andrew. November 30? Max, we're not even close to the end of November. Well, less, as they say, it's always late November somewhere. No one says that. If I may be allowed to continue? Sure, lad. It'd be your time, then. Indeed. 
being a part of the United Kingdom, of course, the Feast of St. Andrew is all very official, with both the Scottish First Minister and the UK's Prime Minister delivering a St. Andrew's address. <laughs> all this time, and they still know St. Andrew's address? Uh, no, that be tradition. That be not what he meant. And notice they be ministers, eh? None of them politicians, then. That is exactly what they are, mon ami. Politicians. Uh, moving right along. I pay no mind to us, Mosey. Would that I could. Uh, anyway, the Feast of St. Andrew is generally a time when Scotland celebrates its rich culture and history with art, sporting events, music, dancing, and even, uh, Scottish cuisine. Ugh. Can we leave out that tradition, Max? But I just got in three cases of haggis and ten pounds of blood pudding. Ugh, I think I may choke up a hairball. <laughs> it's fine eating, then. It's way better than Nigel's News Nuggets. Nigel P. Monaco, reporting. Oh, merci, Nigel, for your insights and your patience. Uh, I guess I were a wee bit rude, jumping in while Mousy be reporting and all. Wee, oui, but... I know you are a little bit excited. Hi, lass. I got lots of games planned and a dance contest. A dance contest? <laughs> oh, monsieur, undoubtedly I will be a contender in that. Oh, I think I'll be giving you a run for your money there, lass. <laughs> you poor deluded doggy. Uh, remember when we tried to waltz and you spent more time stepping on my paws than you did on your own? Aye, but you've never seen a Scotty dog's happy dance. Uh Pardon? Announcer lad will hold out a haggis-flavoured doggy treat and I'll commence to doing me happy dance. Max, uh, that is not dancing. It is in Scotland. <sighs> I say, uh, Nigel here, back from the newsroom. Uh, so, what did I miss? <laughs> Max has challenged me to a Scottish dance contest. Really? <laughs> well, I'm afraid that would not be a contest at all. <laughs> That's what I tried to tell him. I mean, a cat trying to do the Scotty dog happy dance? <laughs> you are in Indeed, far more talented than I had presumed. Oh, uh, perhaps I should reconsider. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Monsieur Announcer, uh, please show us how the Hanover, Virginia St. Andrew's celebration played out in 1743. With pleasure. Hopefully there was no uh, Scotty Dog happy dance. Chapter 7. Magical Meetings Abundant sunshine took the chill off this late November Saturday, but the excitement, not to mention the piping hot food and drink, provided just as much warmth to the crowds milling around the old field in Hanover. Aromas filled the air with crackling fires used to roast savory chickens and sides of beef. Tent after tent covered tables overflowing with food from seemingly every kitchen in Virginia. Ham biscuits, cheese wafers, corn pudding, Three bean relish, melon balls, spoon bread, curried shrimp, oyster fritters, plum pudding, roasted artichokes, brandied peaches, plowman's pastry pies, sweet potato muffins, Sally Lunn bread, almond macaroons, cranberry orange bread, lemon tartlets, gingerbread, apple pies, pumpkin pies, and cherry pies. Mugs were filled to the brim with cider, ale, rum punch, and wassail, and were lifted high and often in toasts to St. Andrew, to Scotland, to King George, and to the bountiful harvest celebrated by this cheerful community of Scottish immigrants. It's a good thing Al ain't here for St. Andrew's Day, 
Max said as he, Liz, and Nigel jumped off the back of the Henry wagon. I don't think the lad could survive tasting even just one bite of everything here. Right you are, old boy. Nigel breathed in the aromas and wiggled his whiskers. It's quite the tantalizing cornucopia of delicious offerings. No doubt Al would become as miserable as on the day Andrew discovered the boy's lunch of loaves and fishes. It's surprising that the disciples even had twelve baskets of leftovers with Al in attendance at that banquet. Liz smiled at the memory. That was a magical day, no? Andrew was the founder of the feast, so to speak. And today, a very same Andrew is celebrated here, on the other side of the world, with this feast. I'm proud that me homeland of Scotland adopted the lad as their favorite saint, Max added happily, gazing up at the flag of Scotland bearing St. Andrew's cross, flapping in the breeze. Today will be a magical day, too, added a tall, middle-aged man dressed in the finery of a Tidewater gentleman. His breeches and coat were made from fine black silk, and he wore an elegant red waistcoat, white shirt, and a white ruffled cravat. His brown wig was well made and tied back with a black silk ribbon. His black tricorn hat was adorned with gold piping, and his fine black shoes were adorned with gold buckles. He wore a magnificent red wool cloak that matched his waistcoat and held a black carrying case. He leaned on a maple walking stick ornately carved with a mountain goat as the handle. Max knew immediately who it was. Run to see you, Gilliman! Ah, ye be looking like a real gentleman! Why, thank you, Max, he replied, holding out his arms and bowing with a foot extended toward the little animal trio. I thought I would become Tidewater gentry for this festive occasion. Bonjour, Gilliman! Uh, you look quite handsome. Is Lady Clary with you? Liz asked, looking around him. Of course. Clary answered, coming up to them in a beautiful blue taffeta gown, white lace neckerchief, and apron. She wore a royal blue cloak, fashionable wide-brimmed hat, and white satin shoes. She wrapped her finger around the single brown curl dangling on her shoulder and smiled. I thought I might be overdressed, but there are humans of all sorts here today, including the fanciest types. Although St. Andrew's Day was celebrated by those of Scottish ancestry, People from all backgrounds came to enjoy the festival, the rich, middle class, poor, whites, blacks, and Indians. The common folk wore homespun clothes of linen and wool, frontiersmen wore buckskin pants and fringed coats made of deer hide, the wealthier class wore fancy suits and gowns made of silk, and the Indians wore colorful costumes adorned with beads and feathers. They arrived at the old field on foot, on horseback, in plain one-horse gigs, in large two-horse wagons and in fancy enclosed carriages. The frontiersmen carried their guns, and the women carried babies and baskets of food. People greeted old friends and made new ones. Children ran around, filling the air with laughter. This is a happy day, of course, but uh, what will make it magical, Gilliman? Liz asked, watching Patrick helping to lift his little sisters down from the wagon. The humans have created fanciful myths about how young ladies can meet husbands at the St. Andrew's Day Festival, Gilliman answered at seeing the young Henry girls giggling with laughter. Let's just say that for this particular St. Andrew's celebration, myth may become reality for some. Magical meetings lie ahead today that will also impact young Patrick. 
Liz followed his gaze. Patrick has uh, many little sisters who will need to someday find husbands, but they are much too young for this now, Gilemon. They are but children, no? Too young to marry, but not too young to meet, Gilliman replied, leaning in with a wink. Remember that for the Maker, old time is happening at once. So these humans may be children in our eyes, but the Maker already sees them as the adults they will become. I just want to see the races and contests, Max enthused. Patrick's been practicing with Sam for the foot race. They agreed to split the plate of gingerbread cakes if either of them wins. Jolly good fun ahead, Nigel cheered. I was reading in the Virginia Gazette this morning about the day's events and the brilliant prizes to be had. A splendid hunting saddle for the winner of a horse race. A fine hat to be boxed for. A pair of silver-buckled shoes to be wrestled for. A handsome pair of shoes to be danced for. A fine pair of silk stockings to be given to the prettiest maiden, Clarie interjected, twirling her curl. And a fine fiddle to be played for, Gilliman added, pulling out a beautiful violin from his black case to hold up for display on an empty table. He lifted Nigel from the ground so he could see. Nigel, would you do me the honor of helping me judge the competition? No mice or men here have your experience of playing or can appreciate this fine instrument, as can you. Nigel's whiskers quivered with excitement as he walked around the violin. What an exquisite specimen! The little mouse exclaimed, running his paw along the wood. Carved in the Flemish style, dark chestnut with brown over golden ground finish, an artificial flame exquisitely stained on the back. He then inspected the bow. The bow is well made with the finest horsehair, now for the violin strings, may I? He leaned over and plucked the instrument, closing his eyes in delight at hearing its perfect pitch. I say, if I weren't so small, I would wish to enter the contest myself. Some lucky chap will go home happy today with this piece. Clarie lifted Nigel's mouse-sized violin from her silk handbag. Well, you can at least play along, if you wish. "'Splendid! Thank you for bringing my violin, my dear,' Nigel cheered, taking his tiny violin from Clarie. "'This will take the biscuit to once more join in the musical revelry.' Gilliman chuckled, pointing the bow toward the excited mouse. "'Very well, Nigel. You can hide in the fold of my hat.' "'Is this fiddle going to someone in particular?' Max asked. That will depend on the fiddlers, Gilliman said evasively with a grin. But this violin and bow, as with Nigel's, were made with special parts. It is no ordinary fiddle. Liz furrowed her brow. Uh, Gilliman, I feel I have only fiddled with Patrick's voice by teaching him to mimic the birds. You told me I am to lead him to find his voice for this mission— you said to think about Plutarch, and that I would figure things out down to the letter, but I am at a loss, mon ami. Might you have a way to help me know what to do next? There is always a way, Liz. Gilliman smiled tenderly at the curious cat, and leaned over to softly pet her behind the ear. As with learning to use any instrument, developing a voice takes time. He glanced over at the fiddle, and then back at Liz. But once the fiddler gets the hang of it, uh, magical music will come forth. 
Liz smiled and nodded. Merci, je comprends. Just then, John Henry came walking toward them with Patrick, William, and John Syme, Jr. Gilliman scooped Nigel up into his hat and stood up. Now what have I told you that we Scots always need to remember? John stopped to ask the boys. Play hard, Patrick answered first with a chuckle and a hand raised high. John smiled and leaned in, mussing Patrick's hair. Aye, after you've worked hard. Never back off from a fight, William added. That'll serve you well in the wrestling match today, encouraged John, putting William in a headlock as the boy laughed, gripping his father's arm. Never waste a penny, and always be fair in your dealings with others, John Syme added. John Henry reached in his pocket and flipped a coin in the air toward his teenaged stepson. Aye, I know you'll be spending this wisely for your brothers. John Syme gripped the coin and kissed his bald fist. Thank you, father. You boys have a good time today. Patrick, run a good race. William, remember the Indian grip that your Uncle Langloo taught you? We'll all be there to root you on. Then I'll take John to visit with some of the countrymen and attend the horse races. We'll all meet up later for the fiddling contest. You should enter that contest, father, Patrick insisted. The winner gets a new fiddle. Not just any fiddle, young man, Gilliman pointed out. This fiddle. Patrick's eyes widened as Gilliman held out the violin for him to touch. It's beautiful, Patrick said, running his hand along the wood. I wish I had a fiddle, especially one like this. Well, good day, sir. I don't believe we've had the pleasure, John said, bowing respectfully. I'm John Henry, and these are my sons, Patrick, William, and John Syme, Jr. Gilliman returned the gesture. A pleasure to make your acquaintance, Mr. Henry. I am Mr. Gilliman, and this is my kin, Lady Clary, recently from London, by way of Northern Virginia. We've been invited to judge the fiddle competition and have brought this special violin from England as the prize. Patrick remembered the letter. Mr. Gilliman? Were you at the Messiah concert in London when the king stood? Gilliman and Clarie exchanged looks of feigned surprise. Why, yes, we were, young man. However did you know that? Gilliman asked. Our cousin David Henry wrote to us about the concert and mentioned your name. He said he sat next to you, Patrick explained happily. He studied Clarie's blue eyes and squinted. There was something familiar about her. My, what a small world indeed, Gilliman exclaimed, sharing a wink with Max, who shook his head with a humorous chuckle. It never got old to play this game with humans. Extraordinary, John exclaimed, putting his hands on Patrick's shoulders. Patrick will have to write, David, about meeting you here of all places. Mr. Gilliman, where are ye and Lady Clary staying? From here we must travel on to Williamsburg. Leaving right after the fiddle competition, Gilliman explained, packing the violin back in its case. In fact, I must go meet with my contact for that event. I see. Please know you're always welcome if you ever come to Hanover again. We live nearby, John offered. On Studley Plantation, Clarie added, immediately blushing as she realized she was blowing her cover. Why, yes, how did you know? John asked. Your reputation precedes you, of course. You are well regarded by those we've met here in Hanover, Clary answered, giving a quick curtsy. Patrick cocked his head and studied her, 
noticing beads of sweat on her brow. "'Most kind, Lady Clarie,' John replied with a bow. "'We will leave you with it, and look forward to seeing you later this afternoon.' "'Indeed, a pleasure to meet you all,' Gilliman replied, tipping his hat before offering his arm to Clarie. "'Shall we, my dear?' As they walked off, Patrick noticed Clarie reaching down to pet Max and Liz. It was as if she knew them. "'Come on, Pat! Let's get ready for the foot races!' came the voice of a boy four years older than Patrick. It was Samuel Meredith, Patrick's best friend. He was tall and lean, with light brown hair and dark brown eyes. He put a finger to his tricorn hat in greeting as he ran up to them. "'G'day, Mr. Henry, William, John. Hi, Sam. I'm ready!' Patrick answered. See you later, Father. Good day, Samuel, John answered. You boys run fast. We'll see you at the race. Good luck, Pat, William called. You run for cakes while I wrestle for shoes. Good luck, Billy, Pat called behind him in reply. Sam was running ahead of him. Sam, wait up! The boys ran in the direction of the foot race being staged for boys in two categories, ages 7 through 10 and 11 through 13. Max and Liz followed after the boys, and a shadowy figure hiding behind a tree followed after them as well. Oh my, a shadowy figure? Aye, them are the worst kind. Uh, right. Uh, well, Max, uh, what other competitive endeavors have you planned for celebrating St. Andrew's Day? Well, if you know much about the Scottish, you know that most of our sports consist of throwing around big heavy things, rocks and bags and stuff made of iron. And telephone poles? Aye, uh, they be called cabers. Well, old chap, that uh, certainly leaves me out of the games. Aye, pretty much leaves all of us out, uh, so I'm having a frisbee toss instead. Makes sense. And we'll do like they did in Patrick's time with a foot race. Of course, in this room, <laughs> I'd be the favourite there, too. Oh, well, mon ami, that would depend on how long the race is. If it is, say, uh, 50 metres, uh, oui, you would win. Uh, but if it were 5 metres, roughly 16 feet, <laughs> you would be eating my kitty dust. <laughs> and I'm afraid I could only win about the first five inches or so. But put us in a maze, and I would eat your proverbial lunch, old chap. <laughs> Touché, Nigel. Aye, you probably could, Moosey. Uh, well then, I need to finish me preparations, but first, we need to race over to Jenny's corner for a special introduction. Indeed, for today, we shall get to know the final member of the Epic Order of the Seven. Aye, uh, there'll be me and me bunny Kate, and me wisest friend of all, Gilliman. As well as me and my cher Albert, and of course, Nigel. Thank you, Liz, and so that makes six. So our seventh is an animal who rarely appears as an animal. Hmm, uh, Miss Jenny? Hey, Nigel, what's going on? Well, my dear, we are ready for you to unveil who the seventh member of the Epic Order of the Seven indeed is. Doggy drumroll. Ruff. And the name is? Clarice the Lamb. Huzzah! And which of your books was her first? We meet her in Book 3, The Prophet, the Shepherd, and the Star, which is the Christmas story. And so she belongs to one of the shepherds who goes to see baby Jesus the night of his birth. Oh, well done, Miss Jenny. But uh, who might your inspiration have been for this lamb? The real Clary who inspired Clary the Lamb was a dear, sweet lady, Clary Murphy, 
who attended my church in Atlanta, Dunwoody Baptist, and Clary and her husband Claude were very special to me. Now, Clary loved my books, and she loved Christmas, and she ran our Christmas store, and she helped provide Christmas to hurting kids, about 900 of them every year, and she worked on it all year long. Well, as I was writing The Prophet, The Shepherd, and The Star, I heard that Clary was very sick, and so I had not seen her for a while. went to see her and spent time by her bedside. I was, at the time, writing this new lamb character, and I needed a name for her. And I'll never forget driving away from Clary's house. I'm like, oh, what a perfect name for a lamb is Clary. And so that's how she got her name. Well, I decided not to just name a character for Clary, but to dedicate the prophet, the shepherd, and the star to her. So I wrote the dedication that night, and I went back to see Clary the next day. I sat by her bedside. I told her about Clary the lamb, and I read her the dedication. And at this point, Clary had gotten to where she couldn't speak well. But her eyes lit up, and she started crying, tears of joy. And we both cried. And then she slept, and then went to be with the Lord the next day. And so that will always be a very treasured moment that I had with Clary, the real Clary, and telling her how she had inspired the lamb, Clary. Oh, those, that, my, that was beautiful. I wish I could have met the original Clary, but uh, we are so blessed to have our version as well. Aye, she sounds like a special lady. And our Clary be a special lady too. Uh, I mean, messenger. I mean, lamb. Uh, well, <laughs> She be a lamb sometimes, eh? Uh, well, old chap, whilst you chew on that bone, shall we turn things over to the announcer fellow then and bring things to a close for this chapter and find out what to expect next time? Well then, old chap, the floor is yours. Uh, indeed, Nigel. Well, as we left today's chapter, you may remember, we learned of a shadowy figure watching the events of the day unfold. But who is this shadowy figure? And what does he want? Is Patrick in any danger? Well, come back next time and we'll find out the answers to all of that and more as our story continues. See you then. Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderofthe7.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grandi! A bientôt, mes amis! Huzzah! And ta-ta! And always remember, you are loved and you are able.